Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Charles J. Shields. Charles is a biographer. He's written a number of biographies of authors. Charles, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me on board. Thank you. Now, when Charles contacted me many months ago, I thought, wow, a biographer. That would be really interesting to talk about, both for Scrivener and because I really like biographies. I'm one of these people who reads a lot of biographies, particularly a lot of literary biographies. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. But the first thing I want to know is, how did you become a biographer? Does one go to biography school? (laughs) Well, you have to um, enjoy being a bit of a detective, and you have to have an affinity for nonfiction and facts. Um, And yet you have to be a storyteller to be a biographer because a biography is not an enormous obituary. He was born, he did this, he did this, and he died. You know, and that cost you $30 for the book, right? Um, I want to create a page turner that showed people actually living in their times. And um, the way I became a biographer is that I read a lot of uh, literary biographies in late high school and college because I thought that in order to become a writer, I should um, read about the vicissitudes and triumphs of, you know, becoming published. Um, and, you know, I found a lot of um, a lot of comfort in reading those literary biographies because the road was not smooth. I think it was Heraclitus who said the gods in their wisdom have made the road to excellence high and hard to climb. And that was one thing I learned to appreciate from reading literary biographers uh, when you're a 25 year old Keats dying in Rome, thinking that you're obscure. Um, what that tells me is fasten your seatbelt. If you're going to go into the arts, you may die unknown. Um, but fortunately, um, teaching, uh, you know, teaching uh, acquainted me with how to keep, keep people's interests, how to make literature lively, um, how to elicit uh, strong responses. And so the better I became at teaching, the better I became as a writer as well. The first few books that I wrote were first few. There are 20 of them. I wrote 20 nonfiction books for young people on historical and biographical topics. And that entire time, I imagined my young people sitting in front of me uh, listening, you know, as I told them the story of Spike Lee or uh, Captain Cook in the South Pacific or the Great Plague and Fire of London. Uh, So that was that was my apprenticeship was uh, first teaching young people, writing for young people, and then turning to trade books and trying to keep up that level of engagement and a sense of um, this book is worth something to you. This is going to be different. I've always found that the best biographies are, as you say, they're page turners. They're the kind of things that even if you've read a biography of the person, you're still drawn by the way that the story is told. And so let me just throw out a few that have really moved me. And, and some of these are biographies I've reread a couple of times. Richard Ellman's biography of James Joyce, Leon Adel's five-volume Henry James biography, Robert Richardson's biography of Emerson, a number of French biographies, because I'm also bilingual French, about French authors. And there's something about these stories, as you say, you're, you're seeing what it's like to be a writer, but you're also learning a lot about the time. You think about, again, Robert Richardson's biography of William James, you learn a lot about 
the creation of psychology as a science. When you read about Henry James, you learn about the social elements of that period. Or a biography recently that I read about Victor Hugo, you learn about the early days of the printing press and one of the first literary marketing schemes when Les Miserables was published. Oh, yes, it's true. Right, right. Well, um, Good biographies deal with contradictions and flaws in people's growing up, and they certainly don't take the subject. The writers don't take the subject out of out of context, out of the times that they live in. That that's fatal to interest. Um, in fact, one of the problems that I've I ran across in researching Lorraine Hansberry was the number of articles and um, lighter books that had a consistent storyline, a through line for her, as, as if. She was meant to follow the path of the saint as if she was, uh, you know, always knew that she would be in the American canon. And of course, when people are living in 1955, the darkness is all around. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. and They're not quite clear on on what kind of American, what kind of person that they are yet. So I spend a lot of time in the book describing Lorraine in the environment of the south side of Chicago how different she was from most uh, black Chicagoans, so that you get a sense of why she gets depressed or why this play is hard to write or why she would be de so dependent on Robert Nemiroff, her husband. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big one on nurture and nature in, in biography, and I want to show all of that uh, to explain the way something was created. Yeah, no author's life can be separated from the context in which they live. Let me just mention, you mentioned Lorraine Hansberry. Your latest book is a biography of Lorraine Hansberry, The Life Behind a Raisin in the Sun. Her name might not be known as well as the play. Unfortunately, Sidney Poitier just passed away recently. He played the lead in A Raisin in the Sun. Your other novels are The Man Who Wrote the Perfect Novel about John Edward Williams, the author of Stoner, Kurt Vonnegut biography, and so it goes, and Mockingbird, a portrait of Harper Lee. So these are all well-known subjects, but maybe not all subjects that had been subjected to a lot of biography before, right? Exactly. I, I try to be first on the scene. Was it the first Vonnegut? Was was yours the first biography of Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. My my process is this, and it's it's rather brief. Is um, I specialize in mid-century American authors. Uh, I look for those who are noteworthy and the ones who were important while I was growing up. Then I look to see if a comprehensive biography has been done. Um, and here's where the critical part comes in. There's two sides to my mind, uh, or uh, two sides to the decision about doing a biography. One is, can I stay with this subject for the years that it's going to take me to research it? Um, David McCullum one time got six months into a biography of Picasso and dropped it because he said, frankly, I just didn't like him. Yeah. I didn't want to be around him. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so this has to be a subject that's going to intrigue me for all those days I spend alone in a room uh, writing and reading. And then secondly, who's going to buy it? Because I have come up, you know, as many people do with with particular interests that matter to me but don't matter to somebody strolling the aisles at a bookstore looking for something good to read. Um, my agent has more than once told me that's too academic. Mm. Because there are plenty of academic biographies, but that just they come out in university presses. They have a small audience, people who research the author's work or libraries, essentially, right? And right. you want to do more than that. 
Right. And so by being first on the scene, I usually have access to people who knew my subject. Uh, maybe their papers haven't been very well perused yet. But the big the big narrative hasn't been created. Uh, today, there's a New Yorker, the article in the New Yorker today about uh, my book. And he the headline is something like, who was Lorraine Hansberry? Really, that's the premise that I start out with. Um, I'm just curious as heck to know about this person, and I go where the story leads me. Um, I didn't expect Kurt Vonnegut to become such a curmudgeon. I didn't expect Lorraine Hansberry to be so rich. Uh, but this is the things that you find out, <laughs> you know, as you go. And when people accuse me of, you know, providing a not very flattering portrait, all I can say is I didn't live their life. They did. Yeah. I wasn't there for the choices that they made. So I'm just I'm just trying to make a story of their life. Well, not everyone is perfect. You're you're not out to flatter someone and write a hagiography. You're out to tell a true story about someone's life. Exactly right. And you know, Samuel Johnson said that if the subject of a biography was perfect in all aspects, we would despair of of having any hope of imitating them. I mean, if somebody in a book had no divorce, had no drinking, uh, had no out of wedlock child. Uh, we would drop, hang our heads in despair and say, I'm a miserable creature and I'll never be anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said you were talking about you have to be able to like the person for all the years you're working. How many years have these biographies each taken you? Well, I always think it's going to take me three. But that what happens is it takes me three to research the biography, and I don't put pen to paper until usually about the fourth year. And then it takes me an additional year to, to revise the book, to go through it and pull tight the loose threads, move scenes where they belong. So every single book, adult book I've written, has taken five years. Right. And then there's the roughly 12-month lead time to get between when you give a manuscript to an editor and when it's published, and you're doing page proofs while you've already started researching the next book. And then you have that complication of trying to keep two things in your mind at once. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a, it was a 20 year, 20 years of rough sledding doing these biographies, uh, very isolating. Um, and, you know, whenever you do something in the arts, whenever you do something in writing and drama or dance or whatever, very few people are going to understand what you're doing. Um, it's not something, you know, you say at a party, I'm an accountant, I'm an attorney, I'm a doctor. People get it right away. Um, you say you're a writer and they say, what do you write? And then have you been published? And, oh, I've never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, while you're taking the train up to Yale and everybody else is enjoying autumn and you're on your way to spend the day in the stacks in the library, you have to you have to give yourself some happy talk, some up, uplifting talk to tell yourself that what you're doing actually matters because it matters to you. Well, I think also a biography is more of a long tail book, isn't it? There are some that sell a lot quite quickly, for, for better or for worse. But there are others where what you're hoping to do is establish something that's going to uh, sort of impose itself as the standard work on the author and, and carry along over time. Right. Yeah, I, I hope for this happy symbiosis between a book, a novel remaining popular and people picking up my biography because they enjoyed To Kill a Mockingbird or they saw A Raisin in the Sun and loved it. So that that's my built-in 
secret weapon, I guess, is that so long as the work remains popular, people will turn to the biography. And of course, being first on the scene, future biographers will have to turn back to Shields and say, well, as Shields reported, or as Shields got wrong, okay, that's fine. That's contributing to the conversation. So at least for you, when your book is reviewed in the New York Review of Books, you don't get an essay by someone else who's written a biography of the same author who's saying, well, no, he's wrong and I'm right, that sort of thing. Exactly. That, that would be, um, that'd be an unfair contest. The, the best situation is we get someone who has written or has expertise in that field right. with Lorraine Hansberry it would be black drama in America, black yeah. theater you know, or something like that. With Kurt Vonnegut, it was sci-fi. You know, those sorts of people. So, yeah, the the most frustrating reviewer is the one who sort of scanned the book and wants you to tell them all about it. So what's interesting about your book? Um, that's that's a downer. Yeah. And, and the thing about biographies as well is it may be a really wonderful, interesting biography, but it may just not grab certain readers. It, it's a lot different than fiction. You have to have an interest, maybe not in the actual subject, but in what the subject did and when they did it. Yes, right. And, you know, I use a lot of structural techniques I borrow from novels to create this a, a readable biography. I mean, I work all day on a particular scene um, to make it, it seem lively. Um, it took me six different tries to get into the book because I didn't feel in any of the previous ones that the reader was stepping on a rapidly moving conveyor and would stay on all the way to the end. So I don't know how many times I, I started to hand, well, I, as I say, I started at six, and sometimes as many as thirty to 50,000 words into it and realized I hit a wall. I don't know where to go from here. The problem is I started out on the wrong path. One of the things I notice in biographies is that first chapter is so important. Oh, yes. Sometimes it's just a drag. Well, so-and-so, the great-great-great-grandfather of so-and-so was born here. And it's so boring. And you can always start later as like a flash forward and then come back. But there's, it's really tough to craft that first chapter, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And um, something that I like to do is to put the reader in a place they didn't expect. For example, the beginning of the Vonnegut book starts with him out of print, um, having too many kids, um, pretty much broke, and going to a teaching assignment in Iowa where he was the last minute choice because somebody else quit. <laughs> this is the great. This is the great Kurt Vonnegut. This is thought of yes. This is Kurt Vonnegut, the family man at fifty in a dirty trench coat, traveling to Iowa, trying to make a living. Yeah, that reminds me of the the Doors song. I've been down so long, this looks like up to me, right? Right, yeah. And with the Lorraine Hansberry book, I have her coming out. She's uh, a success. Uh, she comes out the backstage door. People are vying for her autograph. James Baldwin thinks, I love this woman. And the last sentence in is that one of the audience members is heading back to the office to write his report for the FBI on the play. Now, what does the Raisin the Sun have to do with the FBI? For keep reading. Interesting cliffhanger. Yeah. Good one there. That, that's kind of like an HBO TV series. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scribner to write biographies. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. 
Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, Charles J. Shields. Now, you use Scrivener to write your biographies, and my first thought is that you must have an awful lot of research. You said earlier you spent three years researching the subjects of your biographies. Do you use Scrivener to organize all this research? Yes, organization is critical. It's something I stumbled upon in graduate school. Uh, when I was first assigned long papers as a, a getting a history degree, I thought, how do I manage all this stuff? And in those days, I wrote down three by five cards, uh, you know, as we were taught to do. And weekends in my apartment, the floor was covered with cards and I would walk around the perimeter moving them. Oh, this really belongs here. Oh, this I'll use this paperback book to mark the next page. And so I needed uh, the mechanics to organize a great deal of information logically and stay flexible. Uh, you know, the, the manner, the structure had to remain flexible because I move things a lot. And um, Scrivener is this uncomplaining goddess uh, <laughs> that constantly, you know, with the with the Hansberry book, for example, uh, Scrivener kept 5,300 uh, three by five cards for me, uh, 80 journal articles, uh, excerpts from five biographies, audio interviews, and um, what else was in there? Oh, and newspaper articles from 20 years of the Chicago Defender. And it makes all of the information accessible in the sense, you know, in the re I can actually ask, for example, where did I see that paragraph about slums on Halstead Street? And it finds it. And you can't, you know, I have spent in previous years hours trying to find a fact that I recall, but where in God's name did I put it? So, you know, in a, in a book this deep and heavily researched, um, something like Scrivener is recreating the world for you fresh every day. Wow, we're going to use that as a slogan, I think. <laughs> we should put that on a T-shirt. But, it, but it's interesting, of, of all the guests we've had on the podcast, you are probably the author who has to do the most research. We've talked to people who do research for fiction, for nonfiction. But for you, everything is research. You can't really make up anything. I mean, a biography is making up some things when they're presenting what happens in a certain moment. But you have to still be very tightly tied to the facts. Yes, I'm very proud of the fact that my books are end note heavy. What I mean is there's a lot of stuff back there. Uh, stories, uh, trivia, factoids. Uh, did you know or this woman who just walked through the scene will later become the first U.S. attorney, you know, black attorney, that sort of thing. Um, so, yes, I include a great deal of background information so that you can't fault me on credibility. Uh, I've never had a reviewer say, uh, where Shields gets this is anybody's guess. No, no, it's there. Just look it up. 
and, and it, it paid off one time very importantly because I was writing the, the second the second uh, Harper Lee book came out, Ghost Had a Watchman. And I had said it in my first biography of her that uh, there was another novel out there. It was undiscovered. It was called Ghost Had a Watchman. Um, and when that when that book came out, reporters went to the library, pulled the file card from her agent's papers that I had used, and found Ghost Had a Watchman in me in there. So to me, that's a triumph. So one thing you mentioned that the woman who would become the first black attorney general is what I find interesting in biographies when I do learn about all of these secondary and tertiary characters that are important. Obviously, you read about certain authors, and there's plenty of authors they know who are well-known, right? But then you read about the minor characters, and that gives you a sort of a texture about the life around an author. It's too easy to read about a great author and the great people they know, but it's more interesting when you read about the lesser people who played an important role in their lives. Yes, it's true. And I, I like to create sub-stories for them. Um, you remember the, the program that was so popular in the 70s, The Love Boat? Yeah. And how, how they would stitch together seven or eight independent stories and then yep. bring them together? I really admire the craft in that. And so in the Lorraine Hansberry book, for example, it's it's important for me to see when and where a particular person comes in and out of her life because it gives the reader a sense of familiarity. Yeah. Oh, I, he's back again. Oh, of course. Her for, her first boyfriend. And I thought he was out of the picture. And that's something that Scrivener really helps with, is helping you see those associations. Sometimes I will just put in one name. Give me everything on John O'Killens, all right, who's a, a not well-remembered, uh, almost forgotten black author now. And as the 18 cards on John O'Killens pop up, or all the references in my research to Killens, I start to see a sub-story emerging. You know, he starts to weave in and out of the narrative. So that's another real power of Scrivener, is that it helps you see associations between a lot of disparate material. Could you write these books the way you do without Scrivener? Oh, I, you know, I'll tell, I'll tell you a secret. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird was written the way I learned in grad school, with note cards and all that business. And I never felt I had sufficient control over the material. There was I had never written anything that long, and there was just so much of it. Uh, that's why I was grateful when the publisher came to me five years later and said, would you like to do a revision? Because that book, uh, I needed to tighten that book up. But by then, I had Scrivener. Um, and so in the tightening, uh, I translated a lot of my materials into Scrivener format and the revision of uh, to kill the revision of Mockingbird a portrait of Harper Lee is much much better as a result of having that being able to harness that that uh, cyber power yeah in my research yeah in my research not depending on memory and as you say if you search a name you can find all the the small moments when they show up that you just might not have remembered. Because in any biography like that, you've got hundreds of people that are showing up throughout the, the author's life. Yes, right. Uh, hundreds of people, exactly. And, and some are influencers and some are uh, bad love affairs, but it all helps make it much richer. Now, you know, speaking of what Scrivener does, I, I, uh, I've seen authors who devote one whole 
wall to post-its yeah you know and they'll use yellow post-its for uh mary the unwed mother and they'll use purple post-its for bob the cop you know yeah. and they'll, they'll use i've even seen them use threads from the ceiling yeah <laughs> to show you know plot points uh in what they're doing and they're reinventing the wheel i i, I mean this already exists, and it exists in Scrivener, and you can close the lid of your laptop at night, and it's you've put it all to bed, and it will be there tomorrow, and you need not worry about it. And it really, it, it really is a genie. It's a genie in a bottle. And and your wall doesn't look like some detective hunting a serial killer. Right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't. Yeah, yeah. You know the you don't have those feelings of dread when you look up and think, oh God. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, do you use a really big display? Because so you're talking about the corkboard feature in Scrivener, and I'll link to a article on the Scrivener blog about that. Do you have a really big display so you can see as many cards as possible? You said what, fifty three hundred cards? Yeah, fifty three hundred cards. Well, you know, I I did have a big tabletop display when I did the Vonnegut book and and used Scrivener, but. Um, I have gotten it down. I'm so familiar with it now that I'm on a uh, 17-inch Mac laptop, MacBook Pro, and it's plenty of room because I can push on the corner of Scrivener to get it the heck out of the way. Yeah, you know, or I can drag it up into the corner and, and see it out of the corner of my eye and devote three quarters of the screen to my manuscript. Right. So it's uh, it. You never hurt Scrivener's feelings by pushing it out of the way. <laughs> you know, if you put it back in the dock or something, there's there's no uh, hidden resentment of now you can't retrieve it or that wasn't where I was. It waits patient as a dog uh, for you to get back to it and is always as loyal. So you talked about moving elements around. How do you write a biography? Do you start at the beginning and then write until you get to the end? Or do, is this more of a nonlinear process? Um, it starts out very linear. It starts out with the best, most comprehensive chrono uh, chronology that I can make, you know, even even broken down sometimes into parts of months at the beginning of August, at the end of August. Once I see the literal roadmap of how things unfolded, then I can start dreaming about um, – isn't it interesting that she lived in five major cities, all of which had a very, very different character to them? And all that occurs at, at, on average of every seven years. You know, I, you can only see that with, with, a, with a very detailed chronology. Um, the creative part comes in when you begin moving things around uh, to create impact, to create drama. One of my proudest scenes in the Lorraine Hansberry book is an amalgam of probably about 35 sources that I had all lined up on, on Scrivener. It's a scene in Lorraine's apartment when James Baldwin comes over for drinks. Now, they did that regularly. OK, I've got that. That's a fact. I know what their favorite jazz group is, so I could have that playing in the background. But what did they talk about so I can make it seem like Jimmy and Lorraine are just hanging out? I pulled quotes and remarks and correspondence from all directions, which really only a piece of software like like Scrivener would allow me to do. And I have them talking in Lorraine's apartment in 1958 till almost dawn with Jimmy exiting down the stairs laughing about Lorraine's last remark. Whether that ever happened exactly that way, I, but by God, I know I'm right 85, 90 percent of the way. You're, you're true to the character of each person there in what you're doing. They let them speak, 
let them speak for themselves. And, yeah. you know, and this this is a very important thing uh, that's happening right now in writing and um, uh, pe- people's identities, what they feel qualified to speak about. Uh, while I was doing a res- Lorraine Hansberry, uh, one uh, a black scholar that I was talking to said, be careful not to speak through her. You know, don't don't talk about what she should have thought or or, or what you don't know. don't use her voice to express your ideas. Yes, exactly. Because while that's just that's just bad scholarship to begin with. Right. It but it's particularly sensitive when you're not of that person's background or race, and here you are trying to be the uh, puppeteer. Right. So uh, I did not speak through Lorraine. Right. Are you, I assume you're working on a new biography now. Who's your Who's your next subject? No, no, that's my last one, Kirk. I'm not writing any more literary biographies. You're retiring. Yes. Oh, what are you going to do then? I don't know. Just read biographies. <laughs> I don't know what the heck. Well, the first thing was we we moved from a child. Don't Don't you have an urge? To, don't you have an itch? I do, and four or five times a day, I have to say to myself, "But I'm not going to write that." <laughs> that's interesting but i'm not going to write that um no listen um uh 20 years i i miss my wife um and 20 years in a room was a long time yeah to be away from her and um we just recently moved to southern california from charlottesville virginia which was uh an emotionally fraught town to live in uh it wasn't when we arrived in the uh early aughts but boy, oh boy, uh, I don't need to go into detail. Uh, we moved to Southern California. Weather's different here. We have family here. I'm 70. I'm thinking of putting in just a good decade of self-examination and exploring. That sounds really interesting. So I like to ask my guests if they have any books that they would recommend to our listeners. What are you reading these days? Well, uh, I just fulfilled a wish uh, that I've had for a long time, and ordered a brand new, complete set of Gibbon's Decline and Fall. Okay. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Uh, that is retirement reading. <laughs> that is retirement reading. And you know, it's, I have a hell of a time getting those books down to the beach. Six volumes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, it's just not beach reading. Um, well, you can put them on a Kindle. <laughs> that's true. You can. I know it's not the same. Right, exactly. I have a biography, a, a history of Jerusalem that I'm reading. I just read Mary Beard's Women in Power. Um, anything else? I was going to start a book about life in the shtetl in the 1930s before Nazism. So I'll tell you what, these aren't what you would call light reading. But, you know, I, I'm a slow reader and I try to read books that are outstanding in their field. I, I, uh, because I, I sometimes read over paragraphs two and three times to get how it was done. So since my life is limited and my reading time is limited, I tend to go for the best. Okay, Charles J. Shields, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.